listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. Tennille, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel. Our houses are always Airbnb ready, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. Craig Shepherd is the program director of Backcountry Nonprofit Organisation, Mountain Safety Collective. We chat with Craig today to discuss what the MSC does, as well as their plans for the future. Hi, Craig. How's it going? I'm good, Emma. Thanks for having me. How are you? Great, thanks. Welcome to our little podcast, Craig. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah, and as you said, I'm the director and also the lead avalanche forecaster, the lead forecaster for the program. Um, I'm also a member on the board and sitting in the role of the president currently. Um, But the board duties kind of steer the direction of where MSC is going in the big picture and in the long term. And the director looks over the day-to-day operations throughout the winter. Um, The Mountain Safety Collective, I think, was formed in, I'm going to say 2015, I think, is when it was formed um, by a group in Victoria. But I'm relatively new to this country, so I've only moved here in 2019. And so I've just finished my second season with the Mountain Safety Collective. Did you move here for this role? I moved here for love. Oh, (laughs) yay! Yeah, there's one or two Australian women that choose to ski in Canada now and again. And anyway, yeah, no, my wife was a high-end ski instructor at Lake Wee Ski Resort. And I was a ski patroller and um, we knew each other for years. And then eventually that uh, grew into a relationship and... She was there for, oh, geez, almost 20 years, um, left when she was young, came back with uh, two kids and married. So here I am. <laughs> I love it. I went over to Canada when I was young, 19, hoping to meet a Canadian and marry a Canadian. I met an Australian and married him. It's <laughs> 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 all good, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's nice to have the dual citizenship thing going on, but it does add complications. But anyway, it's um, I'm yes. happy to be here in Australia, and it's nice for my kids to see this side of their heritage and and that all that sort of thing yeah i love it and that's basically the snowy mountains are a fantastic uh destination to ski in really yeah it's in, they're interesting compared to uh Banff or lake louise like the, the biggest mountains tell us about lake louise oh i was definitely into... yeah definitely spoiled um so i i grew up in ontario so i grew up in uh you know if you're in if you're out west you'll say i'm from the east but someone from newfoundland or nova scotia will quickly quickly tell you you're not from the east of canada so Ontario is kind of the center of Canada. I grew up um, about three hours out of Toronto. And as a kid, my mom would never let me downhill ski because she thought I was going to break my leg. So I grew up cross-country skiing. And um, as a little boy, what we do is build jumps and hit them on cross-country skis. <laughs> I'm not sure how that was any safer than downhill skiing. Um, but anyway, after university, um, I ended up going to Lake Louise. And uh, it was a bit of a graduation present, actually, from my parents. I think my mom still regrets it to this day because uh, I just never left. I fell in love with the lifestyle and the mountains and I ended up um, becoming a ski patroller at the Lake Louise Mountain Resort. Yeah. And uh, that led into being a member of the avalanche control team, uh, like a route leader, which the assistant forecaster, and then ultimately the the head forecaster of the Lake Louise Mountain Resort, which was the director of that program there. What yeah. made you fall in love with the backcountry? Well, 
even before I started patrolling, I just, I love, I've, I've always been really active. I love riding bikes. So in the summertime, I ride mountain bikes and road bikes. And so I like the fitness aspect of the backcountry. I like getting my heart rate up and going off and being self-propelled, but I also love the serenity of it and the peacefulness and the lack of, uh, lack of crowds. And so that has kind of always been there since I was in my teens, but, um, but then what happened, what morphed is that I was working at a ski resort five days a week. And so the, to be honest with you, the last thing I'd want to do is go to a ski resort for my days off. So every day off, I would then spend in the backcountry. Ski patrolling, how many years did you do that sure. at Lake Louise? And then you moved into the avalanche control. It seems, is it a, do a lot of people do that? Do a lot of ski patrollers take that progression? Look, that's a great question. And I would say, if I was just try to simplify things, patrollers often go in one of two directions because there's the first aid aspect of patrol. So we had a lot of patrollers that um, really enjoyed that side of the job and became paramedics or went into medicine. Um, some of my friends down in Bright are, are now doctors from with a background in patrol. And then the other side of patrol were drawn to the backcountry, drawn to the snow science, drawn to the avalanche side of things. Um, I, I did enjoy both, but ultimately I was drawn towards the avalanche side of things. And given my passion for backcountry skiing, I also um, have an appetite for education. So I was, I took as many courses as possible over the years to get, to be more informed so that I could travel safer in the backcountry. And then that naturally led me into the avalanche control team. So to answer your question about how long I patrolled for, I patrolled for three years. I started ski patrol with a, at the time, which was a recreational avalanche course, which is now called the AST, the avalanche skills training course. They are, they're offered here in Australia, as well as Canada and other countries. Uh, my first year on patrol, I did the Canadian Avalanche Association level one. That's a professional level course. That's really an observation course. It, it teaches you how to gather information. So it's a, it's an observations course and a communication course. It teaches you how to go out into the field, get the information you need and bring it back and feed it into a system. Uh-huh. After you do your professional level one, you need to apprentice and have a hundred field days of digging pits, working under different people, and then you can challenge level two. And the level two, the professional level two program, then is a program that looks at that data that's getting fed into the system and starts forecasting what the likelihood and magnitude of avalanches will be in the backcountry. Uh-huh. And then, and in Lake Louise, you had to have your level two to even to join the avalanche control team. I can see that what a great background that would be coming from Lake Louise and then coming to Australia and being able to apply all your knowledge to the Australian conditions, and we'll ask you about the difference between that later. Did you get a, when you came to Australia, did you get a shock at our snowy mountains or were they? I love fruit, right? And I love all types of fruit and they're apples and oranges. Um, Lake Louise will always have a special place in my heart. And I won't lie, every time I got onto that chairlift in the morning and looked over my shoulder, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't say, oh my goodness, am I in one of the most beautiful places in the world? Mm-hmm. But I also think snow, uh, ski train through the snow gums is so unique. Like I love the strips of the trees pulling off and the different shades of reds and greens and that sort of thing. I love when the trees are covered in ice. I love the sound that the ice makes in the wind and they tinkle and you go by. Like, so there's lots of, like, you can try to just find the beauty and everything. So they are very different, but the snowy mountains are a very special area too. Yeah, that's true. Going back to your um, avalanche and the snow science. So it is very, very scientific when you get up to a level two. You are a level three. Is that correct? 
Yes, um, so, that's, the, that's the last course within the Canadian Avalanche Association. And that's yeah. kind of almost like a thesis. So you do, um, you actually do a course in the autumn, in the fall, and, uh, and you go into a classroom and you really start talking about risk and, and um, risk assessment and risk treatment. And then you take those concepts and you um, are in a position like I was leading the Avalanche Control Program at Lake Louise. And then at the end of your season, you layer on the concepts that you learn and how did you incorporate them into your operations? Did you change anything? What did you learn? And, and it's a summation of the season. And then you, so you write your paper, which is essentially your thesis, your paper gets graded. And then you also have to do an oral presentation from your season. Wow. Again, talking about the concepts and the program, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I did my level three in 2011. Between 2003, when I did my level two in 2011, I was also like, I, like I have an appetite for education. So I, you know, did um, what's called CPD, continued professional development, um, weather courses, like weather courses, avalanche mapping courses, the module one of the level two, because it was a new addition to the course. And then I also became an instructor for the Canadian Avalanche Association and started teaching those professional level courses. So mm -hmm. if you ever run into anyone in Australia who has their Canadian Avalanche level one, and maybe you guys do, I know you have oh, you guys. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I, I, I used to teach the professional level courses. That um, is incre incredible because what I learned on that course is, you know, is that I was lucky to survive where I've skied a lot of the time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I think, and I learned more than that, but honestly, it was really quite frightening the situations I had put myself in. I think that Australians need to learn, especially young Australians need to learn yeah. because we do think she'll be right, you know, and we don't think avalanches happen in Australia, but they do. So tell us a bit about the Mountain Safety Collective. What is it? The Mountain Safety Collective is a not-for-profit organisation, and I think one of the biggest things we do is we provide a daily backcountry conditions report approximately mid-June to mid-September. Yeah. depending on when the snow first falls and, and kind of depending on how the season ushers out. And we also are an advocate for backcountry skiing and we're a point of contact for um, for different backcountry festivals and that sort of thing. But our, in my opinion, our main mandate is to provide information to the public so that they can inform themselves and make better decisions. So if I want to go backcountry with my friend, I'm going to get the information from you guys. How do I, I would, get the information? Where, where do I find it? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Our, we have a website and the website is mountainsafetycollective.org. And on mountainsafetycollective.org on the homepage, you'll see something that says backcountry conditions reports. And we write these reports for three regions, New South Wales, we have the main range in Victoria. We have the dividing range, which is Mount Bogong, Feathertop, Hotham. And then there's also the front range, which is Sterling, Baba, and over that way. And depending on where you want to go with your family, you then, it says it will have a, an icon that gives you an idea. Like red means stop, yellow means extra caution, and green means normal caution. And just as an aside, green never means go. Like green is doesn't mean go, but green means normal level of caution but then to view the full report if you click through whichever region you want then you would see the full report and in the report we talk about the avalanche conditions we talk about the surface conditions and we talk about the weather conditions yeah and that's actually a key point of difference in australia to canada and the work that i've done in canada we were laser focused 
on avalanche hazard. If you and your family wanted to go backcountry skiing in Banff National Park or in the backcountry of British Columbia, again, you'd look up the region, you click through the report and they would tell you the avalanche conditions and that was it. Now in Australia, when MSC first formed, um, they were doing a little bit of backcountry conditions reports, but they canvassed the user groups and the government and the agencies and the professionals, the ski patrols. And the belief was that we would be remiss in this country to not talk about surface conditions and weather conditions. Because in, from a 2017 report where they analyzed all of the accidents in Victoria that required rescue from the SES, a small percentage of them were avalanche related. A much larger percentage of them were due to people getting caught out by the weather. And then there was also a large component of people having what I call slide for life accidents, where it's you get sheer ice cover on the top, mm. you lose your edge or your footing, you torpedo down the mountain over a rock, off a cliff, into a tree, that sort of thing. So trauma is a, a big issue. So that's why you'll find that the Mountain Safety Collective on our website, on those reports, will take those three things into account. These reports, are they generated from measuring machines or is Owen Lansbury standing out there with a stick? Um, these reports are put together through, through a, a daily process. We have a daily routine that we go to and the reports take into account the weather, the previous conditions, the weather that's happening overnight and currently, and then the future weather. And so as an avalanche forecaster, what I like, so, and I'll speak to avalanches a lot because that's most of my background, but I'll also let you know how that also ties into the surface conditions. But what I do is I track the snowpack. I track the snowpack from the first time it snows to the last time it melts away. And, and as snow hits the ground, it starts to change. It either gets stronger or it gets weaker. And sometimes when snow falls in diff at different times, you'll get layers that are persistent and they don't go away. So you have some persistent weak layers. So we, we track those and monitor those. So when you're, you're joke about like, where does it come from the information? A big part of the information are from field technicians out digging holes looking at the layers, looking at the snow. And I think, again, where the Mountain Safety Collective and the work that we're doing and I'm trying to really do here is it is a collective, and I strongly mm -hmm. believe that. Like in Canada, I didn't just go up there and, and wave my magic wand and say, abracadabra, there's going to be an avalanche there. I had a team of avalanche professionals that were gathering that information. We were tracking layers. We were testing slopes and that. And the Mountain Safety Collective, we're very fortunate because um, a lot of folks have gone overseas and gotten education. So we have several people in our team that have their Canadian Avalanche Association level one that are trained observers. And so I go out with them each year at the beginning and I train them. I freshen their skills and I, we look at the snow, we identify the layers, we talk about resistances. And, and I, because again, like I was saying, that's a communications course. I want to make sure that their skills are up to date. Do you have to be a member? Uh, look, it's a really good question, but no, like the, the membership originally is, a, it's a, it's a not-for-profit organization and yeah. the membership came with some benefits. So you could have a map and different swag and that sort of thing. And it was supporting a cause. Mm -hmm. And what it allowed the MSC to do was to commission a report from a Canadian company called Dynamic Consulting. And in 2019, they produced this report to MSC that said, look, here's, here are all the things that you guys um, should look at changing. You could improve this product. So to go, not to say to go with me, but I, go, I take people out who are trained observers and who are a part of the team, I would say. The, the people that I take out and that I'm training are those that have committed to the MSC 
and are, are feeding information into the system on a regular basis and who have accreditation through the CAA. So yeah. it's not our membership per se, but it's a small cohort. And as, and as we get more funding from different sources, we'll have the ability to actually employ um, observers to be out so in the field and gathering that information. Do they... Do, you, do they approach you? Have you been finding up to now or do you? Oh, it's been great. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. There's There's been a, I would say for the most part, there's been a great cooperation and there's been a great buy-in and people are coming and say, oh, hey, I've got my level one and I'd like to be a part of this. And and I think, you know, it's a it's a work in progress. This is only my second year. And so we're, we're working on different ways to communicate. And I obviously I'm overseeing a program that's in Victoria in two places and in New South Wales. So I have different teams and we have different communication tools that we're using um, to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I guess the way it would work is that I'm responsible for the program. I take that core group of observers and train with them each year. And then throughout the season, we're communicating and they're getting the benefit of that, but I'm, I'm getting the benefit of their their information and their observations from the field. And, and then that's how I p- paint a picture. And then I write most of the reports for the backcountry. I don't write them all. Mm-hmm. But if you ever, um, when other people are writing them, I'm in the background just going over and checking them, that sort of thing. And having the discussion, because again, I don't, I don't want to be solely responsible either. Yeah. I to say, hey, Tanil, did you read my report? Does it make sense to you? And Emma, you were over in that area. Did you see this? Does that make sense? And, and there's constantly, or if I have any gaps in my knowledge and there's uncertainty, because there's often, if not always uncertainty out there, I would say yeah. often, there's often uncertainty in the mountains. And then uh-huh. I will portray that to the team. Hey, this is the information we're lacking. Please head to the, these elevations, uh, these aspects. This like look for this thing. What's happening with this specific layer? When you when you go to backcountry in Canada or in Japan, there's signs. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that in Australia, is there? To kind of pre warn people, because the backcountry is accessible from so many different points along a road. Like you can just drive past Threadbow and access the backcountry. They have to sign in. Where do people sign in when they go to backcountry? Do you recommend them to do that? I mean, one thing is. Um, of course, uh, we have a good working relationship with Parks, Parks Victoria, and we have really good conversations going on with Parks New South Wales. Yeah. And and so we definitely get behind them and saying, fill out your trip intention forms. So that's the first thing that you want to do when you're going to the backcountry. That goes back to the basics. Tell someone where you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's great that the parks actually have a system in place where you can fill out a trip intention form because then if you are overdue, they know exactly where to start looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other thing about these reports and ac- access, I think that is changing. And this is anecdotal, and this is just from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. I do believe, although I didn't see them myself, I do believe now there's some signs in different areas in the main range. Like, for example, at the top of Threadboy, I believe there's some sort of signage there. I'm not 100% sure. I also believe that they now we have a QR code for the Mountain Safety Collective that is at some of the trailheads in Victoria. So as you're at the trailhead, you can boom, hit the QR code, see the report, and then go with your day. That is excellent. That is exactly what should be everywhere. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and we're well trying done. to get it out more and more. And we have, again, good buy-in from the different um, operators in the towns, whether it's Bright or Jindabyne. And hopefully next year you'll see more and more of the MSC QR code. It sounds like you're a very sophisticated outfit. Would you say that's the main difference from 
others in the industry, better teamwork almost. It's more collaborative. Collective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, look, I, I do. I think, again, I think we're MSE they were a very keen group of individuals and, and they saw like there was an accident in 2014 of two snowboarders that died in an avalanche. And mm-hmm. they said, look, enough is enough. The culture needs to change. Avalanches do happen in Australia. We have to stop having a denial culture. But then other little things, they just kind of got lucky. There is a woman named Alex Snickers, who is an Australian and she is a professional engineer who went to live in Canada for a number of years, did an applied avalanche research program through the University of Calgary, did her Canadian avalanche level two, and then came back to Australia with all this knowledge and kind of saw what MSC was doing. It's like, I see what you're doing, but you're not quite hitting the nail on the head, but I want to help you. And then there was enough membership money that they could commission that report. And then Dynamic Avalanche Consulting Group, who is a total worldwide recognized group that does avalanche consulting, they wrote they wrote a huge report for the MSC with a list of recommendations. And then so, you started putting them in place. Yeah, so it's last, like quite synchronicitous, isn't it? Just well, yeah, exactly. Emma. The right person at the right time with the right skill set, and it just all comes together. Well, and that's the last piece of the puzzle for the MSC was I'm sitting in Manly having a beer with my Canadian friend who's a doctor in Bright and his wife is Alex and and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm kind of doing this and that. And he said, well, there might be an opportunity here. And then I talked to the MSC and it's like, yeah, of course, I'd love to help you guys out because I love backcountry skiing. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. I love safety. And, and I would love to be involved with that. Um, when I when I left Canada, I must admit I thought I'd you know okay close that chapter on to the next thing. Um, you know I'm a lousy surfer, but uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was just fortuitous and and it's been great. And I think I think it's been good too because I I've, I've been able to get to a lot of tables and have a lot of conversations with some really great people in Australia. Yeah. And I think that's because of my experience in Canada. It's really given me access. And, Without uh, a doubt. Well, you, certainly if someone came to me and said they're an avalanche forecaster from the biggest mountains in Canada, from the Rocky Mountains, you want to know what they've got. You want to know what information they can give you and help. With your avalanche forecasting, how do you then go, okay, right, job title, avalanche forecaster? I sent an application online to Vistaprint and got some cards with my name and Avalanche Forecaster on it. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's not true. I know it's very, very hard to be an Avalanche Forecaster. (laughs) Like I was saying earlier, it really is an apprenticeship program. And and Lake Louise, uh, Whistler, Blackcomb, Red Mountain, Whitewater, um, I mean, on and on. Sunshine Village, all those places have avalanche control programs of some sort. And and you become an avalanche forecaster um, or you can become an avalanche forecaster after your level two. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, for me, that was, again, fortuitous because I, I, along the way, became an apprentice ski guide with the ACMG. And and I was on track to, and like many others before me at Lake Louise, that after a certain period of time, say, okay, it's time for me to go guide. And they went ski touring or heli skiing or cat skiing became guides. Mm -hmm. And when I had that conversation with the previous avalanche forecaster, he said, he said to me, well, Craig, you might want to reevaluate because I'm about to leave and move to Whistler. And so there's, there's going to be the assistant forecaster job open. 
Um, okay. So again, it's this serendipity that's mm-hmm. just fortuitous that I was in the right place at the right time with the right experience level. And then also in the background was family coming along and wanting to prioritize family. And, mm-hmm. and I think um, every, it's always different, different things work for different people. For me, I want to be around home more than not. Yeah. And I think the guiding lifestyle is quite hard. I would find that hard to be gone from my family so much. So staying at Lake Louise and being involved with the Avalanche Control Program was a win for a lot of ways. How many are on the team there? It's a small team. There's mm-hmm. a seven dedicated avalanche technicians. So there's the forecaster, assistant forecaster, and then a team of five. The way I would describe the avalanche control side of patrol and the ski patrol side of patrol is that a ski patroller does about 80% hazard marking, responding to first aid, and about 20% of avalanche control work, and vice versa for the avalanche controller. Um, the avalanche controller, we in Lake Louise, as you mentioned earlier, really big mountains, continental snowpack, which means a relatively shallow snowpack, cold snowpack. So it's plagued by persistent weak layers. We artificially stabilize slopes using explosives and ski cutting. And, and we literally start in the core of the mountain and then start working out. So mm-hmm. by by just beating the snow into submission, triggering avalanches, breaking up the layers, you can stabilize slopes and and that's how that would work. The wind moves snow and then where the snow ends up is a big part of understanding where avalanches are. Like if you can figure out when you're in the backcountry where the wind was blowing from, where the snow was removed from and where the snow has been deposited to, that's a pretty good indicator of where the wind slabs might be, where the cornice development might be. And I would say in Australia too, that's one of the big hazards of cornices. Um, mm. There are what I call frequent flyers. So a frequent flyer is an event that will happen annually. And, and I'm fairly certain that there are frequent flyer cornices in Australia in the main range and, and in Victoria as well. Mm. Yeah. So um, with the uh, Mountain Safety Collective, where are they headed? Where are you headed? That's a great question. Uh, Look, we have some exciting things coming down the tracks. I think where we're headed is we have momentum right now. Mm -hmm. So in Victoria, we have really good backing from Outdoors Vic and Parks Vic. And and that's where a lot of our funding is coming for paying for this service. And um, we've also had really great conversations with um, Parks New South Wales. And we've had great support from Outdoors New South Wales. So a woman there named Laurie Mode. Uh, shout out to Laurie for all her help. And so there's, which is good because there is a lot of funds coming in, which allows us to have all these processes in place because it's quite an onerous task to keep track of all this throughout the entire winter. And it requires a daily commitment to gathering the information and feeding it into the system and coming up with the bulletin. Mm. Um, the other thing where we're get, where we are gaining momentum is the MSC is launching an ambassador program. And I can't speak to it right now, but we have some really awesome ambassadors coming on that are like, love what you guys are doing, like what we're seeing, happy to put our name to it. That's cool. And then we also have some good potential corporate sponsorships coming on board too that um, is exciting. And that will hopefully um, also be exciting for our members because there's a possibility that members could benefit from those different sorts of relationships. I just want to ask the question of like, why would I become a member if I can still access your information? That's a great question. And I think it's to 
support the cause and be involved and know that you're putting a little something good into a not-for-profit organization. So I think it's a really a belief thing. I think some people buy a membership and they do it one year because they want a certain piece of swag that comes with it, whether it's a map of an area or, or um, a sticker or a hoodie or whatever the swag is of that year that, that you get with your membership. But we also do see recurring members that just have a belief in it. And they're like, you know what? We support you guys because we like what you're doing, what you stand for. And, and we're happy to put our 50 bucks in each year to help you guys out. When I saw under the membership, I read the uh, your code of ethics. I really mm-hmm. loved that. I felt like, oh, this is a group I want to be part of. You mentioned team spirit, collective respect. Yeah, it really was inclusive. And I thought, yeah, I'll give my $50 to so them. I may not go backcountry, but they're keeping a lot of people safe because I know that a lot of people go out there uneducated. If you owned a snowmobile, you were on the rescue team, you know, and they weren't trained. They, the lead guys were, but there was many hands on deck, you know. And a lot of the time you would just have to go out the main range to find people that just got lost because the weather changed so fast. Yeah, that's right. And and again, that goes back to our reports. Like you said, that's why we also want to be clear of what we think, what the weather's coming. Yeah. Or you have good connections with uh, different meteorologists and people that are involved because again, I'm, I'm an avalanche forecaster. I'm not a meteorologist and the weather will affect the avalanches and the possibility, the likelihood or the magnitude of the avalanches. But, but I'm an armchair meteorologist. Like I can probably look at weather maps with the best of the ski bums in us. And because everyone knows when they're looking for that cold front coming up from the Arctic and yeah. <laughs> on their trip to the, the main range. But, um, but we also have people that I can say, Hey, what do you think the timing of this is? And what do you think the freezing levels are? And that sort of thing. So that's what makes it the collective, isn't it? All the skills all together. Yeah. That's right. And I do, before I forget, I want to say about the membership and the collective back to painting a picture and all the pieces of the puzzle coming together, the, the more pieces, the clearer the picture, we do have a place where the public can put in their information. And this is something that they do in Canada. It actually started in the United States, I believe. I went to a conference one year and they were talking about crowdsourcing information from the public for their bulletins. And there were definitely people standing up in the rooms like, how could you listen to, you know, Joe Blow that doesn't know anything? And they're like, well, there's a number of reasons. First of all, they're often willing to go places that we're not as professionals. (laughs) 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 And secondly, though, a picture's worth a thousand words. And so anyway, my point is the public, the membership, anyone can go onto our website and share their trip information with us. Say, this is where we went. This is what we saw. Here's a picture of it. A perfect analogy would be the app Waze. Yeah. Well, what I what, what I'm doing is writing a forecast, but then mm-hmm. I need to validate or refute the forecast. Yeah. So if I say there are wind slabs on east aspects, then then I go out into the field and look for wind slabs on east aspects. So if then the public member writes in and says, "Hey, I was over on Mount Tate on an east aspect, and we triggered a wind slab," then that validates like, okay, I was right. Those wind slabs are there. They are reacting. That's great. Um, but what happens if I don't get that feedback, then there becomes more uncertainty. So the kind of the longer, the longer you spend at the forecaster desk without actually being able to validate or refute your information, the greater the uncertainty becomes. Mm-hmm. And that's a difference for me because in Lake Louise, you'd write your forecast at 630 in the morning and you're on the snow at 730 in the morning. And so you knew right away whether you had nailed it or you had blown it or if you just needed to slightly adapt it. 
And so that's where that it's an iterative process of making a forecast, verifying the forecast, adjusting next day, making the forecast, verifying forecast, adjusting. And that's why I believe it's the best information that you can get in Australia. It's because now you have this team of people out there that are putting the attention to all those details to make sure that they have the right information going up to the best, to the best of our ability. It often rains before snow comes in Australia. Does it make it harder for you to forecast because rain happens so often in Australia? It doesn't matter. And, you know, it, is, it is very different, especially for me being a Rockies kid. Yeah. Um, so I come from the coldest part of the Western Canada and the mountains. And so it uh, it's a con- it's a continental snowpack. It just has different um, different challenges, I would say. Yep. Now, a place like Whistler, they'd be used not oh, used yeah. to, but they would have rain on snow events now and again. Yes. Not to the same extent that we have here in Australia, but for sure, that's been something that um, I've had to adjust to. I I was for- fortunate to do a season in New Zealand um, back in the day, so I did have a season in a real maritime snowpack. And, and to become a guide and um, you had to spend lots of time in all the three snowpacks, a maritime and interior and the continental. So I've done that all over the years. Um, but yeah, it is different uh, to try to not, not to overly simplify things, but it actually is a little bit beneficial having a little, the rain before the snow okay. in the sense that if it was cold and frozen and icy and then it snowed, there'd be less likelihood of that new snow bonding to the old snow surface. And if you get that prefrontal rain, it moistens the snow surface, and then the new snow has a greater chance of bonding. So it's not to say that that is always how it works, but often I think mm. that's what kind of saves us here in Australia with the um, the avalanches is that that prefrontal rain allows that new snow to bond just a little bit better. But then what I've seen a lot this year, for example, is although it's bonding at that old layer, then you have... Uh, like a density change or um, a snow crystal change within the new storm snow and you have an instability within there. What would you like to see for the MSA? I would like to see um, more people using the site and visiting it to inform their decisions before they go into the backcountry. We did have really good visitorship of our website this year. It really spiked this year. I'd also like to see it continue on the path that it is in terms of getting really good collaboration from ski resorts, from government agencies, from commercial operators. And I would love to see it um, all in one system. So I'd love to, I'd love it if the public um, was able to go to one central point to get that sort of information for the backcountry. I mean, we did interview Adam West and that was really great for, and we we, talk, we did talk about equipment and level entry, um, I guess, people heading out to backcountry. But do you have any recommendations for equipment, like the latest or this one's being used here? And mm. Well, so in terms of backcountry equipment, I mean, there's the, there's the trifecta, there's the beacon, shovel and probe. Those are kind of the mandatory things that always go into your backpack. Also, you're going to have your extra layers and your hydration and your food and your first aid and your emergency shelter and your rescue toboggan, all this sort of thing. But if I was just to talk about the trifecta, the beacon shovel and probe, I think the the important thing with a shovel is that you want to have an extendable handle and a good size scoop. Because if you are in a situation where you're trying to take someone out, from an avalanche, the more snow you can move, the faster, the better, like just time is of the essence. 
And so I think it's worth having a, just a slightly bigger shovel. And it's, it's super important to have a longer handle to just be faster and stronger and to dig that snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a shovel is a great tool for a lot of reasons. I mean, I use it for snow science. I use it for digging snow caves. I use it to dig a little platform to have lunch or to make someone a table. So I can set them up a picnic while guiding, whatever, like a shovel is a great tool. Uh, a probe, you want to have a long probe, a three meter probe, because um, although the snowpack might not be that deep, um, if an avalanche happens and goes into a constriction or what's called a train trap, the snow can quickly pile up to that um, that incident in 2014 on Mount Bogong. Um, unfortunately, it was a four meter, four and a half meter burial. So oh, yeah. I think they had to use some ready rod and, and improvised probes because no one had probes long enough. And the last thing I'd say for the transceiver, and I'm a really strong believer in this, and there's several transceiver makers in, on the market. Mm. And in my career, I've had three transceivers. Each time I switched from one transceiver to the other, I carried with me two transceivers. And the reason I did that was because if I could not use my new transceiver as well or better than my old transceiver, I wanted my old transceiver to be the tool of choice. So my point with the transceiver is know your tool, know how to use it, be practiced with it and understand all of its nuances. And I've seen like, cause I've been on guides exams and I've trained with lots of people and that sort of thing. I've seen people excel at their transceiver skills with all the transceivers on the market. So I just say, know your tool is the most important thing. Mm. I, I like that idea because I know when, just as I was mentioning about Utah, we got the, you know, new fangle transceiver that all the people in the Wasatch Mountains were using. We just had to practice hiding it with the kids, you know, or when we were having lunch and everything. I hate being handed like brand new technology and you don't know how to use it. it just freaks me out. Yeah, absolutely. And and as a professional, I still train every year. That's the first thing I do at the beginning of each season is uh, practice that I'm I also when I'm teaching people recreationalists, uh, I love having little games like okay, everyone Pack, backpack on your back when, when I say on your mark set go and I'm going to time you guys and see you can do it the fastest I can get your pack off probe assembled shovel assembled beacon in ready position that sort of thing and awesome. yeah just that practice 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 because when things go sideways you need to just have those on automatic pilot you've got to get it out and use it Flog in it. some of the in some of the BC results now it's really good that they've actually down the bottom of they've made practice areas before people go out into the back of the mountains and they think that's a really good addition to a lot of the resorts in I'm pretty sure they're probably doing it in Alberta as well even if they did it in Australia you know that that's a great idea just to get fresh because I remember on the course I wasn't even finding someone I was finding a backpack that you know buried and I was in a panic mode going how do I use the transceiver I've just been taught for three hours how to use it but when the pressure was on you know in that time it's beep 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 you're like Yeah, so I I can't even imagine what it would be like in a real-life scenario. Have you found yourself in real-life scenarios rescuing people? Um, Yes, but just before (laughs) I get to that, a shout-out to the MSC for bringing the first avalanche training centre to Australia. And this year on Mount Hotham, they did have one of those to practice for people. Yes! Uh, Yeah, so shout-out to the MSC. Uh, In particular, Rolf on the board was a big... Um, proponent of that and there was a little bit of crowdfunding that went in and there was sponsorship money that went in and there is now one that was in operation this year he's just about to get it out of the field so that we can um, look at this the statistics of how many people used it so it'll be really interesting and then it now also then gives us a platform to try to get something a little closer to sydney maybe 
so yes. we'll, we'll try Perfect. to figure that out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so regarding avalanche rescue in real life, uh, touch wood, fortunately, I've never been involved with any big wrecks. However, when you are engaging with avalanches on a daily basis for 100 plus days a year, for a lot of years, there mm-hmm. are mishaps that happen in the control world and and as an avalanche controller um we would like i said earlier mitigate avalanches with explosives and or ski cutting and sometimes things go wrong so i have um seen over the years a number of near misses um and Mm -hmm. i've been involved in a couple of avalanche accidents myself Uh, but in all those rescues there there we had some things really going in our favor Uh, one is that we only ever would expose one person at a time to the risk and mm-hmm. two, we were a really highly trained group of individuals with eyes on each other when it happened. Yep. And and three, I think the uh, the avalanches that I was a part of, they were they were large, but not extremely large. So they were on the small side of large. And um, I only saw one person get buried, but he he um, we could still see. I, th- I think a piece of his backpack, and so we were to him within. 30 seconds and had him out within under a minute and not even having to take out the shovels because we could just see him. And that was wow. part of, that was part of calling out avalanche and keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him. There he is. There he is. Watch, watch, watch last scene point and someone being able to ski through a safe area and then duck onto the debris and get him out straight away. So, um, so yeah, so I've had a number of moments like that in the, <laughs> in the 15 years of doing that. Lake Louise. So. Yeah, well, on that, I think the person that you're traveling with is probably your best equipment to take in the course. They said, or oh, if you're going to go back country, always take someone that's better than you. Make sure you, that you're educated so you don't hinder that person either. It's quite a conversation that backcountry skiers have with each other. Like when they go out in groups, you have to fit that group that you go out in. Yeah, absolutely. That safety gear that we were talking about earlier, everyone has to have that. And you've hit the nail right on the head. If there's an incident in the backcountry, your best chance of survival is within your group. So your group needs to be self-contained and have everything that they need to rescue someone. If you're calling um, for a rescue from the SES or in Canada, let's say the park warden service, that sort of thing. By the time that a professional rescue agency gets to you, um, it can be too late. So you Mm. absolutely need that. And and to Neil, I'd like to add that I've always thought those relationships are quite special. I've never been one to, to just like get onto a forum, for example, say, Hey, anyone going here today, let's go hook up together. Yeah. Um, and I also have a background in climbing and my climbing partners were quite special because literally our lives are in each other's hands. And I want to know who that person is and what their background is and how yeah. they travel. And, and then also to say one other thing, I think it's important to have maybe a different group of people that you ski tour with. Cause I go touring with people that I'm happy cruising around the Valley bottom and that's it. And then I have another group of people that I want to go get into some more interesting train depending on their skill set so so you don't want to if everyone's going to have a bad day if the objective doesn't match the skill level and if if um if you have a difference of of opinion of or um if you if you have different objectives in mind i think it's great to have a mix of group for sure you're talking about demographics and look the statistics they if you're between 18 and 25 and male that's the majority of people that have issues in Banff national park so 
I think, look, I've been in the industry long enough that a lot of things have changed. I think communication is getting better, but again, it's that importance of, of choosing your group and, and same with uh, guiding, like as a guide, um, I like to involve my clients with my decisions. I, I generally say, look, if you, if anyone doesn't want to go here, let me know. And, or if you don't feel good about something, let me know. And if I can't justify why I feel good about it, then we'll go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like some of my best days, heli skiing were with groups that were way out of their element and we stuck to the mellow train, but they had like smiles miles long at the end of it. And we were just on the gentlest train and stayed on one run for half the day. Mm-hmm but I don't mind. Like it was awesome. They you know, they're it. safe, you know, they're safe and they're smiling. Like honestly, yeah, exactly. that became the member. You would have access to a lot of these other people that you can start that conversation with to maybe form a group. You allow your members to, can they talk to each other? That's, that's something that's come up recently. And we're looking at that. Um, we don't yet, but that has, yeah. So another question on the mountains and the snow. So you've been in the same resort for 15 years, say Lake Louise. How much does the snow, the hill, change every year with snow does it form in the same areas or does it that's kind of a there are some there are some really general patterns that do like because in canada and western canada sounds like you go to bc a lot like we have mostly southwestern flow so predominantly our winds are from the west so one of the beautiful things about lake louise the front side of the mountain was scoured the back side was loaded and the back side was all the double black diamond skiing that sort of thing so there are definitely trends now that said, um, each year a spanner gets thrown into the works and there's um, a persistent layer that wasn't there the year before, or like conditions change enough that you definitely need to be cognizant of the current snowpack. But there are some general trends when you have, like, and same with here, um, you're talking that generally, not always, there's prefrontal rain when the systems come from where they do out of the southwest mm-hmm. and then the wind switches around from the northwest um, once in a while you get an east coast low and then it's kind of an upslope into the main range and victoria doesn't get things so there's those kind yeah. of picture general trends but there's then also nuances that are specific year on year yeah it's it's almost like if i look at new south wales they're the front side and victoria is the back side completely different weather patterns i would imagine yeah well they, they do they do um they are affected differently for sure. There, yeah, there, wow. It's been good this year because um, this year we were really able to kind of compare data. Um, last year we couldn't compare it as much because of circumstances, but, um, and that's the other thing going forward. Like it's just going to kind of get better and better. We're just kind of finding our momentum. When, you know, when you go to all these places, Canada, or, uh, US or whatever, they just, I guess the reason they can feel so um, more advanced than us is because they're just so much more established and they have a lot of um, people involved. But I I get a sense in the last couple of years that Australia is really catching up. And Yeah. And I think it's important to note that Canada became Canada because of watershed moments over the decades. And I can name a few years in, in particular that, like, big events happened that then changed the course of how Canadians did things. Mm. And I think that's the benefit of me coming here is because it's kind of rewinding the tape. And, and, and mm. uh, that's why I'm really into the collaboration. Like, in Canada, there's something called the InfoX, which is the information exchange. And all of the most of the professional operations in Western Canada input what they've seen. And so the forecasters who are working for Avalanche Canada then have this rich resource of information of what's going on in the backcountry mm-hmm. from heli ski operations, cat skiing operations, uh, ski, ski hills, ski resorts. 
And, and again, so that's what we can be doing. And that's why I engage commercial operators in Victoria, New South Wales. I engage with ski resorts in both areas because it's that collective and there's only good that can come from all that information sharing for the public. Because again, I'm, I'm all for the public. I just want the public to have the information. <laughs> in a perfect world, the government pays for everything. They keep the information for free. And um, but, but yeah, so that's why um, I don't see I don't see competition. I don't think there's room for competition for for public safety. I think we all need to come together to help the public make good decisions. I do like the idea that of a training um, training place closer to Sydney or wherever because all these people, you think of the demographic that's heading down to the snow, people can be a bit time poor when they get down there. Mm. Um, But I imagine if it was um, located in Sydney or other major um, capitals, you're going to make time. You'll say next Saturday I'll go and do that away Mm. away from the snow season when you've got a bit more time. And when we educate more people, take their learnings to Canada, to Japan, and then as part of your code of ethics, you've got, you know, be respectful when you're abroad. It's a huge thing. And I, and would, I can yeah. see like our kids, I can imagine if it was in Sydney, Europe. send our kids there to, to be trained and mm. it's a bit, you know, and then we know, okay, they've got their car license, they've got their avalanche training, they've got their, you know, all their licences covered. It's just more skills. Yeah. Oh, and, and like yourselves, um, you know, there's lots of Australians that go over and do season on season and either do ski school and become instructors or some do ski patrol, become patrollers, and then they come back and they have this accreditation and skills. And and now that I think also just culturally things are changing, right? Like I, I think I met my wife in 2000, 2001, something like that. And I remember the first time coming to the snowy mountains and wanting to go in the back country and talking to, talking to the stores and Jindabai and saying, you know, like, what well, can I rent for gear? And do you guys have any gear? And it's like, nah, mate, she'll be right. Like there's no such thing as an avalanche here. And now all the shops have beacons, shovel probes, um, you know, their back country guiding operations, like people have just gotten an appetite for it. Um, they understand that, there are risks and hazard out there, but there's also a lot of people that are still going out there without that knowledge, but just things have changed. Like there's a lot more people in the backcountry, And I think that's not unique to Australia. It's happening in Canada too. And yeah, um, I remember driving over Rogers pass and mm. it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And it was like end of February. So it was warming up, you know, the amount of cars parked, along Rogers Pass, like, you know, it's luckily it was a beautiful day because you wouldn't park if it wasn't. But just every single kind of pull-in was filled with cars and they were just trekking up the hills. And I thought, wow, this is huge. (laughs) We used to laugh because there was, there was once upon a time you go to Rogers Pass and if you saw someone, you'd kind of look at the other group and go, uh, hey, do you guys want to kind of team up today and go in the same valley? Yeah, okay, let's do that to... Hey, I wonder where we can go to get away from all the people. So again, yeah, there's just been a huge increase in backcountry use. Um, yeah, 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 which is great. But we want them to be educated out there, and so amazing that you got you're starting the evolution for Australian skiers to actually get educated, have somewhere to go to understand, to read a bulletin. You know, that's that's incredible. They're really great. And I really think that Australians will probably jump on board and send you, start sending you all their information to you once they know that you're collecting it and you want it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. And I do have a I do have a little trick for Australians that uh, might be closer to a beach in the snow that want to use their avalanche 
um, beacon is mm. put it in a nice sealed bag and buried in the snow. Mm. So, or, sorry, buried in the snow. Yes, for all those people that are closer to a beach than snow, you yeah, can do transceiver practice on the beach. Um, I happened to be in Australia the year that I did my guides exam, and I was training on the beach with my transceiver <laughs> before going back to Canada for the winter. So um, there, there's different things you can do with them, and, and kids love them. It's hide and seek. It's like yeah, love technology, and they love playing games. So there's the technology hide and seek. That's a great idea. I might take mine down to the beach next time. My daughter's got a friend. <laughs> yeah. School holidays. We're trying to do anything. It's <laughs> well, well protected and covered so you don't get sand and grit in it. But um, Yeah, that's true. No. Yeah, that's that's actually really cool. Yeah, I, I love, yeah, it's, really, it's been great having a chat to you. You are an incredible inspiration to keep learning about the mountains that we love so much because sometimes we take them so for granted, you know, the, that, that, that they're there and we'll just go for a walk. But they are kind of scary places (laughs) and I and I also can't help but note you know it's like when you hear people and they say oh my mother didn't let me play football or whatever (laughs) and they end but you know like your mother like you just can't plan far ahead can you you just you know like she didn't want you to hurt yourself getting skiing and then suddenly you look at the job you're doing like that really backfired on her didn't it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, the, the, the funny turning point for my mother was when I was in New Zealand and I was I was the snow safety officer for one of the little club fields out of Christchurch. And, and she called me or I called her and she said, where are you? I said, I'm in my office. She's like, you have an office? It's like, yeah, the Avalanche forecaster has to have an office. Oh, that sounds like a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, she does she know how many lives you're saving? Oh, no. <laughs> That's so I, funny. Yeah, anyway, I've caused her lots of restless nights. So. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, will you encourage your children to go back country and explore? And oh, uh, you know, I feel really fortunate because my kids don't remember learning how to ski. Like basically, from the time they could stand, they were sliding on snow in some regard, and they grew up in Banff. Um, when we go to the snowy mountains, my daughter really likes skiing inbounds, but my son, he's 12. He's already, um, we do little things like take the ice axe and go climb up steep snow gullies. And he wants to go backcountry skiing next year. So yeah, he's, he's into it. And I do, I'm mindful of that. Cause again, when I was his age, I didn't do any of this stuff, but, yeah. um, but I, I get so much happiness and joy out of being in the backcountry or from riding my mountain bike that I want to expose my kids to this from an early age and we'll see if they want to do it great and if they don't I guess they'll be their own person right yeah yeah you can't choose (laughs) but but at least you're giving them opportunities is what I say (laughs) I I do remember being in Lake Louise um, so we moved here in 2019 and um, we were in the backside of Lake Louise on one of the double black diamond runs and I was with my son and he was 10, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I just remember having this moment of, oh man, I spent 10 years getting to this level where you can see the whole mountain and now we're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going back. Uh, yeah. I, you know, oh, we'll go back. One day we'll go back. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and I'm, I'm happy that there's snow in this country and, and, yeah, I do. I, it is beautiful. It's different, but it's beautiful. And and uh, I've I've been lucky. Like I've been lucky. It uh, like without exaggeration, well over 100 days a year, 150 a lot of years for you know the better part of 20 years. So 
Yeah. I've gone up and down hills a lot of times. I've, I've guided heli skiing. I've got a cat skiing. I've got a ski touring. Um, I've been to different countries. I feel like I've had a fantastic run at it. And this is the next chapter. And I feel stoked that I can still go out on the snow and just find my happy place. Yeah. And like all good books, this chapter leads to the next chapter, leads to the next chapter. That's We're going right. to pace ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we often finish up on um, a, our question, well, we always finish up on a question of um, where is your favourite place to ski in the world? You can have a couple. <laughs> well, um, Emma was mentioning the Wasatch earlier. I would say the best resort skiing I've had for a just a destination ski was in, in Snowbird and Alta. Yes. Classic where it was six to 12 inches every night the whole time we were there. And it just was. Of Utah champagne powder, hey? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely unforgettable over the face, over the head blower. Um, Were you staying up there? Did you get caught up there? Did they shut the road or? Oh my goodness. Yeah. We were staying up there. It was actually on, it was actually on a ski patrol exchange. So Every every once in a while, you got to go exchange to so the Utah patrollers, go to Lake Louise, Lake Louise patrollers go to Utah, and they roll out the red carpet. Like, they've got you up there doing avalanche control. I got the fire, the howitzer, the pack howitzer, the recoilless, because it was a big avalanche cycle. Um, they had a big section of their train closed off to the public because there was an event coming up, but they kind of lifted the rope and said, oh, go for it. And like it was there were crazy skiing, crazy parties. And, wow. and it was unforgettable. Yeah. Um, Lake Louise, I would happily ski there for the rest of my life. Obviously, it has a special place in my heart, especially when you know someplace so intimately, like every roll, every rock and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and And the views of the of Lake Louise and Mount Victoria and Mount Temple. Um, those are, they're just burned in my mind and I would go back there. Um, and of course, a shout out for Tennille, British Columbia. That's no honor. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's so many great places to ski in British Columbia, both backcountry or mechanized or ski resorts. So, so I yeah. feel very lucky to, uh, to have spent a lot of years in Canada. What, um, what heli skiing company did you work for you? Uh, great Canadian heli skiing. It's yeah. between Golden and Revelstoke along yeah. the Trans Canada. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, the Great Canadian bespoke heli skiing experience. Small groups, small machines. Uh, the yeah. Purcell Mountain Range, the Selkirk Mountain Range. Really good train. Excellent guides. <laughs> <laughs> the Selkirk's my, one of my favourites, actually. But oh, that's yeah. Emran. Emran, my goal is to uh, go on a heli skiing trip together. <laughs> it's up there. It's up there. Yeah. We're gonna get it. We're gonna get it. <laughs> Uh, yeah well thank you very much for today you're welcome yeah we really appreciate it we look forward to watching msc grow it's it's needed and it's amazing so thank you thank you thank you both i really appreciate the time and it's great to get the word out there and i do hope one day that we can slide on snow together yes same thank you take care Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, 
then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.